Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to a Table Talk. This is a podcast of the Florida Conference Beloved Community, and it's good to be with everyone on this beautiful Wednesday afternoon. Today is October 4th, 2023, and my name is Erwin Lopez, and I am the co-chair of the Beloved Community Team, which works alongside the Bishop's Anti-Racist Task Force. And today, we're going to be having a very important conversation with the Bishop of the Florida Annual Conference, Tom Berlin, on the topic of anti-racism. We're gonna hear about his experiences serving in Virginia, about the new insights he's gained in Florida and his hopes for the United Methodist Church, both locally here in Florida and globally as well. Then right after he shares, we will enter into a time of Q&A led by the co-chair of the Anti-Racist Task Force, Reverend Lee Hall Perkins. So please feel free during today's webinar to put in your questions in the Q&A box or in the chat, and we will be monitoring them and we'll answer them at the end of our webinar. And please know that today's webinar will be recorded on video and podcast form for you to share with others. And please make sure you stay tuned for the end of the podcast as we have some very important announcements from the beloved community. So we're going to go ahead and start. Bishop, thank you so much for your time. Lee, thank you so much for your time. Um, but we're going to start with you, Bishop, and go ahead. The floor is yours, and we're excited to hear from you. Make, make sure you're on mute. Make sure you're on mute. There we go. Yeah, thank you, Erwin. Thank you, Lee, for this opportunity. I'm grateful to you both, and I'm I've got a clock that I'm starting right now to make sure I, I hold to my time frame. Erwin's actually giving me a pretty ambitious uh, agenda uh, to share with you in the limited time that we have, um, but I think it's a good agenda. He asked me to talk about the things that he just mentioned. How has anti-racism been in my own life? How is it? How's that work that I've done local church as a pastor? As many of you know, um, before I became a bishop, I, I served as United Methodist pastor in three different appointments and then in seminary as well. Uh, the last appointment I served was a 25-year appointment at Flourish United Methodist Church. And so some of what I'll be saying comes out of that context and that congregation in the work that we did together in the time that I was in their, their tenure. And um, so <clears throat> let me start by just talking in the local church as a pastor. We developed a goal with the congregation's leaders, with the church council, to develop a more diverse congregation on the foundations built by a 115-year-old church that was primarily Anglo. When I came there in year one, <clears throat> that church probably had a 1% diversity. And then by the time I left, we were, we were hovering toward 20%, which when you go to conferences about diversity in churches, 20% um, is, is a really positive threshold that once you cross it, you're into a, a good, a good um, growth spot. Um, so I've had to think a lot about that, but in the midst of doing that work of just trying to become more diverse, and the goal of that was to reflect the community that we were in. And the way, the shorthand, the way that we talked about that is we wanted our church to look like our elementary schools. So what we noticed is in the public schools, uh, they were very diverse. But when we walked into churches, as Martin Luther King pointed out in the 1960s, and it still hadn't changed, um, most churches are not diverse. They're, they're, they feel segregated. And while that segregation isn't necessarily intentional, it is a part of the life. And so we have to think about how to overcome it. And so in that congregation, we helped the congregation embrace that as a goal. So it had to move from the pastor and the leadership into the congregation to say, you know what, we have a, a goal that an act of personal and corporate discipleship and sanctification, the new way we started talking about that was, was to be anti-racist. Now, of course, most of America, after a series of um, uh, of murders and violence toward people of color by police officers across the country, most notably uh, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, um, but we could give many other examples. Um, we took on this, this moniker of anti-racism because we felt that was a really helpful way to think of it. And that came out of the, the writing, you know, that was done at that time. And the thought is you, you've got to move from trying to avoid being racist to actually being anti-racist, which means we live in such a way that we call out racism when we see it in ourselves, in our corporate life as a church, in the lives of others. Um, but we do that in a way that allows us to grow in our discipleship. That's how we framed it. We always believed that that was an act of sanctification. I was really happy when I came to the Florida Conference 
and the conference and the previous Bishop Carter had were all using that same language. So that was something I was really accustomed to. Now, in the local church, what I found that we had to do <clears throat> was we had to move people from an unconsidered racism. So primarily white people who had really never thought about, am I a racist? And by the way, my experience of white people is most of us do not want to believe that we've ever done or said or thought anything that was racist. But we also don't want to consider whether that's true or not. Even the work itself can feel daunting. So we wanted to move people from an unconsidered racism to becoming anti-racist. Um, and that started um, by educating people about their own history. Now, I have a personal interest in history. That's just something I enjoy. And so we tried to talk about the racial injustice found in the United States um, from its roots. And, and of course, we were, I was living in the state that had Jamestown, which is where the first enslaved people were brought to um, you know, a, a, the first colonization of the U.S. Um, there in Jamestown. So we want to talk about U.S. history, Virginia history, because that was our state context, and then in our local community. So an example of that would be there was a stone right behind our church, not on our property, but on property connected to it, um, that was a stone where um, Confederate soldiers would meet. And that stone was sort of had fame in the local community. And we had to go, you know, look at the stone and really talk about what what's being celebrated here. You know, what why is this stone as a meeting place for Confederate soldiers a source of pride for some in our community? And we had people within the history of our church who held that pride and actually helped erect the monument around the stone. So we had to talk about what does that mean to us today? That's an example. We did that through sermon series through book groups um, and through um, and something that we had in the church called Dinner for Eight Conversations, where we we met during Lent and had eight people at a time would meet. And we did this. We had numerous Dinner for Eight groups within the church. But we had a sermon series um, that dealt with race and racism. And then we had questions that they could discuss at their table. We did some training for how to lead those questions. But we found that all of that had to happen. And we were also doing interfaith and ecumenical work, especially around um, issues of justice that were um, community action, community organizing. Um, sometimes that was in our county and sometimes that was within our state. And so all of that was happening together. And at the same time, we had to help people develop um, cultural competency across racial boundaries. So that was with African-American people, that was with people from South Asia, because we had a large influx of people from India and Pakistan. And we had a <clears throat> we had been working for years um, with um, Latino uh, persons that uh, lived in the community. We had a 24-year partnership with an elementary school down the street that was the most diverse elementary school in Fairfax County and had the second highest free and reduced lunch population within that particular school. And so we just formed a partnership and said, how can we help? And <clears throat> that actually helped us with our cross-racial competency by having those experiences. Um, I also realized as a pastor, this had to be a part of my own personal journal journey. I had to talk about how I was trying to move from racism toward anti-racism. And that had to be confessional, as I've talked about my own personal journey. I had to discover <clears throat> how that was true for me and I talked about the nature of that work in my life and my wife's, Karen's life. Um, <clears throat> we committed ourselves to doing a lot of reading and hold on one second. We committed ourselves to doing a lot of reading, a lot of education, attending uh, seminars, webinars, um, so that we could um, grow in our own capacity to do this work with others. We had to do it in ourselves. Um, an output of that for me was this book. Now, this is not a book about Tom Berlin becoming anti-racist, but within this book called Reckless Love, I talk about that if we're going to learn, many times we say, wow, I'm going to learn to love God, and then I'll know how to love others and myself. And a friend of mine were having a conversation, and he helped me flip that around and what I discovered is if you want to keep the great commandment to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength and love your neighbor as yourself, you have to actually, in some ways, start with your neighbor 
and yourself and learn to love there. And in so doing, you will actually learn how to love God. Because so often we want to say, oh, well, I love God, but I have a problem with these people. But what Jesus taught us is that we're never going to love God until we learn to love all the other people. That's why anti-racism for me is an act of discipleship. It's an act of sanctification. And it has to be personal in my life and corporate in our life as a church. And that would include a conference or the larger general church. <clears throat> so the book um, became a sermon series. It was a Lenten study we did for six weeks. Lent is a great time to do confessional introspective work. And we tried to design that in such a way that congr the congregation was doing that work as well. By the way, <clears throat> as I describe this, I'm not describing an event. I'm describing about 10 years of work in one congregation, because when you work and do this work, if you do it once and say, well, we did that two years ago, like it, it just has the work is the work and the work has to always be done because we're we're swimming in this water. So we have to constantly sort of identify it and deal with it. And if we want to grow and become a community that looks like our local community, Every time a new people group walks in, we're going to have to do the cross-cultural competency work again, because Indian people are not like Latino people, and they're not like white people, and they're not like African people or African-American people. So you just have to keep doing the work year by year by year, and you have to embrace it, not as the hard work. You have to embrace it as the good work. It's the good work we're doing because we want to actually fulfill the Great Commission and the Great Commandment, to love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and... If you want to share Christ and go into, you know, the equivalent of, you know, Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth, sometimes the ends of the earth has come right to your community. So to do the great commission, you have to learn the great commandment. <clears throat> and so we just found that the cross-cultural work enabled us to actually do evangelism. Now, in the local church, a couple of other structural things we had to do that I wrote down. One was we had to do or when I'm checking my time, okay. Um, we had to do human resources work. We had to make changes to hiring practices to consider the matrix of diversity that we desired on our staff team because people need to see themselves when they walk into a church. So if you're an all-white staff, um, you're never going to attract people of color. It's just that simple. And so that has to become one of the, on the matrix of hiring, It just it's a consideration. Uh, and we had to um, undertake training in diversity, equity, and inclusion for all of our staff. And I had to model my excitement about that and not like, oh, we got to go to the DEI training. Like, you just can't do it. It's not doesn't work on that in that way. And we had to, we validated our pay structures to make sure that there was equity. And we had, sometimes we had to make real changes. We had, we realized, wow, this person needs to be paid more based on what they're doing uh, and who, you know, how we want to do this work. And so we just validated all that. And our leadership required that. Our lay leadership required that. Um, we also began to use missional relationships as a place of learning and growth. So that was a church that took mission trips to Cuba and Costa Rica and Sierra Leone and Mississippi to Bay St. Louis, that area during the Katrina recovery. And we just discovered that we could build tra cross-cultural training. We could say, hey, we've got to get you ready to go to this country or ready to go to this place. So here's a training. But the truth is building it into the mission trip meant that they always had it, but they were often more willing to do it to prepare for the trip, if that makes sense. So we just tried to use everything as an opportunity. Now, let me switch to Florida Conference. That's a little bit of my personal life. That's my work as a pastor. So let me switch quickly because we've got about three minutes. Take your time, Bishop. Take your time, honestly. Don't even worry about time. Take okay. your time. You're okay. Yeah, take you. your time. And and by the way, if you all want to talk about any of this in the q and this is a really exciting part of my own life, and I, I'd love to talk to you more about it. But in the Florida Conference, as you know, we've got a dismantling racism plan. This is my copy of that plan. And um, I've taken time to read this and, and actually reread it. Um, and there are some points of the plan that I'm, I've am i tabbed out because they're, they're either things I'd like to think about more or questions I've got. And so first, I just want to thank everybody who did this. This happened before I came. This is when Bishop Carter was the bishop here. And it begins, you know, in the, in the year of when George Floyd and Breonna Taylor, I'm not reading exactly, but the idea is we have to mark this, this time frame that we're in, but it is actually a plan for, for all time in the sense that anti-racism is always work that humans have to do. 
by the way, you're not going to hit a year in your life when you're not going to need to do this work. Many of us hope for that. I was, I was born in a time, you know, in my youngest days, you know, I heard Dr. King's name and he was alive, but of course, not for very long in my lifetime, he was assassinated. And then the work continued through other people and other times. And there's a part of me that always thought, oh, I can't wait till we don't have to do that anymore. But the problem is that sin is so deeply embedded into human relationships that we will always want to not know our neighbor. And we will always find ways to be, to, you know, say that another person is another person and not my person. And we'll always find ways to protect ourselves from uncomfortable things like talking about race and diversity and loving God and loving neighbor. So I'm really grateful for the team that wrote this. I'm grateful for the conference, the Florida conference passed it. I think that's great. And I'm, I'm really pleased to join you in the work. And it, it is work, but it is good work. It's a, it's a sanctifying work. Um, I'll continue to do that work in my personal life as a part of my sanctification. And I, the way I say it is, I embrace the fact that this work will always have tension and discomfort. Um, I do a little bit of woodworking. I did a whole lot more before I was a bishop and a whole lot less since I've taken this role because of time and other factors. But um, when you do woodworking, it always includes friction and heat because you cannot make a wooden thing beautiful until you add the friction of sanding and the processes that bring the beauty out of the wood. So it's the friction and the heat that bring the beauty out. And if we don't do it, we just have rough things and unfinished things. You can't do that inlay if you can see this and you can't get it feeling like this unless you put it under friction heat. So, you know, I want you to know that I'm committed to that. I also say this, as we do the work, we must be gracious and gentle with one another, even as we bring heat and friction. So it's the both and. Um, I'm grateful for the plan that it's the most recent iteration of the work in the Florida conference, because before Bishop Carter was here, Bishop Whitaker was here, and under his tenure, the conference actually spent a great deal of money doing very intentional training with an outside organization that was brought in during that time. So we see the work being done over periods of time. It's not the bishop's work, it's all of our work. And I would want the work to continue as I'm the bishop here in Florida for however long that is. Um, it's interesting when you look at this plan, there's a survey in the back, and I would love to see how this survey would change with disaffiliation. Um, we're in the Florida conference, we're gonna lose 35 plus percent of our churches, 35%. Um, I'm not saying that the bad people are leaving and the good people are staying. I'm not saying that the racist people are leaving and the, and the non-racist people, anti-racist people are staying. I am, I do wanna point something out. Um, Having done a handful of these information sessions, the information sessions I was a part of, there were moments in some of those information sessions when I realized homosexuality was not the topic, racism was. Some people were angry because of elements of this plan and their discomfort with heat and friction. So it would just be interesting to retake the survey now just to see Again, it's not an accusation, it's just see how does that change what we're working with now? Is the conference, a question of curiosity, is the conference actually more willing to be engaged in this work than it used to be? Is the conference more willing to confess that the work is needed than it used to be? And I don't know the answers to that, I just think it would be an interesting thing to do. Let me give you um, some priorities that I think are important, and <clears throat> some of these will cross over nicely with the plan, others are my observations. First, I wanna say that we must address the health of churches that uniquely minister to communities of color. Um, Dr. Geraldine McClellan, who's the president of our Florida Conference, um, Black Methodist for Church Renewal, and I had a conversation back in the spring. And Dr. McClellan really helped me see this. She said, listen, Bishop, you have got to focus on African-American churches. That's one example, because their health is less vital than it used to be. Um, I was at um, a church uh, where Reverend Pamela Green works, uh, serves in, um, in Lake City, I think is the name of the community. By the way, I'm traveling a lot through Florida and I get names wrong a lot. And I think I was at Trinity United Methodist Church. 
on the front of the church was a banner and the banner was a picture of a 12 year old girl. I thought, oh, how nice uh, a child like children. I love children. Say, so isn't that great? But then I read the banner and the banner was helping the community remember a 12 year old child who was killed in a drive by shooting in her home less than a mile away from the church while doing her homework. Essentially, she died because she was doing her homework at the kitchen table and the random act of violence that was a drive-by shooting claimed her life. Now, I, first I wanna be, I'm grateful that that banner was there. I'll also say this, we need that church to be vital because that church is in that community that just experienced a drive-by shooting. That's not the only story of that community, but that is a very important story. And if we have more healthy churches in such places, they bring their health to those communities to deal with everything that, that's happening. And so there in Lake City is a really important banner and an important observation. And I believe Dr. McClellan is correct. We, we absolutely have got to do that. Second observation. When we do the work of justice, we are wise um, to sometimes really focus on the needs of, of children because especially in the state of Florida, anything that we do that is legislative in nature will be disputed. So we just know that. We don't need to say why or anything else. But when we focus on children, children have a unique capacity to build coalitions and unify people. And when you do legislative work that cares for children, people, people of goodwill always understand that poverty and racism will disproportionately impact the lives of children. And, and if I say, let's do this for children, and you say no, you kind of have to admit that you've got a problem that's not about the children. And that gets to a clarifying conversation. So I just think children have the ability, I've always felt this in ministry and experienced this in ministry, children can unify us and children can help us build coalitions with diverse people, by the way. Um, third, we have to keep doing this work, anti-racism work in appointment making. And I, I felt like the cabinet made great strides in, in appointments last year. And I think we're going to continue to do that. I want you to know that your cabinet members to a person value that work in appointment making. And we're going to have to start working in cross-racial appointments where sometimes Anglo people go into black churches, primarily black churches or primarily Latino churches, if they have language and other skills, because congregations need to do the work to understand the clergy person. We've learned that with cross-racial appointments where black people are, are going into predominantly Anglo congregations. And the congregations need to learn that and the pastor does too. So all of us have to do cross-racial skills and we cannot say, hey, pastor, you do all the work and the congregation's gonna treat you however they want. And the reason that's important is what we really want is to grow more diverse churches that look like the elementary schools in their communities. And that's not happening because most of our congregations, our lay people, and often our clergy too, have never developed the cross-racial, cross-cultural skills and competencies. So the appointment making is an opportunity for that, just the way in my local church, mission trips were an opportunity. Um, we have to have a continued willingness from the Episcopal seat this is a chair I occupy. It's the Episcopal chair. It's actually an office chair, but you get the idea. I have to be willing to comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I want you to know that I have practiced at that in other settings and other locations. And I don't do it to tick people off. That's actually not how you do the work. You don't wake up in the morning and say, how can I make the largest number of people really unhappy and call that anti-racism? I'm actually trying to convince people to enter into a form of discipleship that simply must include sanctification that comes through anti-racism. And to do that, we have to work with people in strategic and smart ways. And we can do that, and I, I would love to be a part of that with you. Um, we have to continue to implement this plan. Later today, I've got another meeting, and it's about that, the continued implementation, and that'll be one of many meetings because that's just how the work gets done. And they're not always by me because it's the, the work. I, I'm not gonna, I'm participating in the meeting I'll come to this afternoon, I'm not leading it. The members and leaders of the anti-racism um, task force and then also the Commission on Religion and Race in the Florida Conference, they have to be primary leaders and motivators, but they need all of us to be a part of that together. And I just wanna observe that. 
Um, another observation, I've got two more. One is relationships. Relationships really matter. And I would observe that the Florida Conference has really great relationships, especially amongst clergy. And there's this cycle that's been identified to me. People went to camp together as children. People went to Wesley Foundations. People became clergy and laity who now work together in the Florida Conference. It's, it's an amazing cycle. I want to build and, and help Corey and others you know, continue that cycle, Wesley Foundations. But I also want to observe something else. During that same time period, many people of color didn't come to the camp because many people of color didn't feel like that was a safe place because of historic things that happened in certain counties and locations in the state of Florida. And we all know that's true. So part of what we have to do with future relationships is we have to figure out, wow, if we're going to have places where relationships are developed, how can we get everybody into the camp? So the camp, wait for it, looks like the elementary school in my community. And, and how can that be a diverse space that we can build relationships over time? And the camp isn't the secret to everything, but the camp is one of the things that has to do that, as do the Wesley Foundations, as do, as do all these other places. So we have to just keep working at that. But the relationships matter. And what I found the local church is, you can read books. If I have to do one more all-white person book group where we all read a book and we all answer the questions, then we all go home and we never know any people of color and we don't have any authentic relationships, that's not anti-racism. That's just better information. So relationships really matter and we all have to do the work. I'm not just picking on white people. I'm, picking, I'm saying to everybody, we have to have real relationships. And the way you know if you've got that is, Take the number of visitors that have been at your dining room table over the last year and just notice who was there. Those are your relationships. And we all have a capacity to have about 160 relationships in our life. Um, and, you know, just take a look at who's in that circle. And you'll, you'll know there's a section in here about that, too. Finally, training. We have to do training on how to do this work in the local church with a focus on churches becoming more diverse. And I'm going to continue to say that where the rubber hits the road is what the local church looks like. And in Florida, we have very few churches that actually look like their community. We have a lot of churches that are mostly almost 100 percent white in their worship makeup. This is just my observation of being there. I'm not condemning anybody. Then we have churches that are all African-American. Then we have churches that are Latino. And by the way, the Latino churches often segment um, by where people are from. So Cuban would be one example of that. And then we have other groups, Haitian churches. And, and, and there is a historical space for all that. And I celebrate everybody. I celebrate any healthy church, any of them. And I would like to be a part of helping some churches become reflective of their community and be truly diverse. But to do that, we're going to have to really think about how to train people and all the things. So that's a part of the comprehensive plan. That's a part of all the work that we've got to do. And I'm going to stop there because Erwin, I've now taken more time than you asked me to. And I apologize. So let me you know, just. You're fine. Thank you, Bishop, so much for especially sharing those last priorities. We're going to enter into a time of Q&A now led by uh, the co-chair of the Anti-Racist Task Force. So Lee, um, take us away. Thanks, Erwin. And thank you, Bishop, for taking the time to share with us um, your experience, your observations, uh, and part of your heart and vision for continuing this work of anti-racism in the Florida Conference. Uh, we're thankful that uh, you want to continue this work uh, and that you see as a part of uh, our discipleship uh, as, as Christians, uh, as followers of Jesus Christ, to be uh, engaged in the work of anti-racism. So to turn to some of the questions that are in the chat box and also in the Q&A, uh, one of the first questions I saw was from Reverend Brittany LeClaire, uh, pastor in, in Pinellas Park, uh, Florida. She asks, how do we better prepare our churches for hiring clergy of color and putting people of color in leadership roles? Lee, ask me that question one more time. Make sure I, I capture both sides of it. Yep. The uh, first part of it is how do we better prepare our churches for hiring? Uh, well, they they don't hire. How, how do we better prepare our churches for receiving uh, uh, clergy of color and also helping these churches um, put people of color in leadership roles? 
lay leadership roles? Yeah, you know, I, I think to to start that work, the first step is to agree that that's what we want to do. Um, you know what I find in local churches is that um, surprises don't help. Surprise, you're getting a cross-racial appointment, right? So the, the very best thing that would help the cabinet is if a church would identify, we would like to be in a cross-racial appointment and we would like to do the work that goes with that. And, you know, wouldn't it be great if, if rather than the conference saying to the local church, would you consider, wouldn't it be great for the local church to say to the cabinet, hey, we'd like to work on this because we think it's a part of our sanctification. Now, if you do that, the superintendent will work with the appointed clergy person to prepare them for your context. And Arlinda Burks and others, uh, Reverend Arlinda Burks and others are doing work to train congregations to receive a cross-racial appointment. So we actually, this is a great thing about being in a connectional church. Um, uh, Arlinda will train everyone to receive that appointment and do that work. And, and also there, we have these church profiles. That's the, the administrative document with your district superintendent where you would signal this. And you can also just pick up a phone and call your DS. But Lee, what I would observe to you is very few churches are saying to us, we would like to have a cross-racial appointment because we want to be anti-racist. Um, and I can't think of a better way to do the work than to enter it because that's relational. We have resources for you. And the cabinet would love to talk about how to do that and how to do it well, because churches have churches have a lot of, you know, there's a big matrix for how you're you're making these assignments or these appointments of pastors and churches. How large are you? Where are you located? You know, all that has to be considered as well. And the cabinet does that work. So I think it starts there. Then the training is an important aspect. Conversation with the superintendent is an important aspect. And nothing is more important in all of this than congregations, their leaders saying, let's commit to this. See, we've asked the conference to commit to it. That means that we have an equipping role because they're really the only mission of the conference is to equip leaders for the local church. What we need are local churches to raise their hand and say, you know what, we really want to do this where we live because that'll affect your life. That'll affect your relationships. And then we can also talk about other aspects of this, like, do you have enough compensation for this? Do we need to augment that in some way? But if a local church says we want to do the work, the conference is going to be far more likely to engage in really generative conversations about how the work gets done. And then we're strategic. And while I'm your bishop, the conversations that I'm going to pay more attention to are the ones that are actually strategic and not my list of big wishes that I hope will happen, but I don't want to do the work of creating the strategy. And I don't want to do the work of actually making a commitment on my side. I want the conference to make a commitment. We have to work together in strategic relationships of love for Christian discipleship and sanctification, because that's our Wesleyan background. So I hope that answers some of the questions aspects of this yes i think it does bishop thanks for answering that i would add to it um that we did have at least one congregation who did reach out uh, to the district superintendent and request a cross-racial um training that reverend arlinda uh, burks does um in hopes that they would be prepared to receive a uh, cross-racial appointment one day and but as Bishop said, that is not the the norm. We don't have people uh, bombarding us with that request. So, um, but that is that is an option. And uh, as Bishop said, you can reach out to your, your district superintendent, have a conversation within your your church council, your staff parish relation committee about about that. All right. And friends, we have never been more resource rich than we are right now. The problem is not do we have, like strengthening the black church as a denominational focus. We have all these resources. The problem is many local churches simply don't ask. And, and let's be honest, I'm going to push here. You have a responsibility to say we're in. OK, that hand in the air, that commitment, that makes all the difference. And I'll tell you, if you'll commit as a congregation, as a local church leader with your church council, things can happen. Great. Thank you. Uh, well, this comes from the Q&A box. The person is Roland Heinrich. He says, in my view on the current split uh, on LGBTQ plus inclusion, uh, it is a reflection of our failure to deal with racism in the church over the past 40 years or more. It's the same argument 
Um, same arguments were used during, to defend segregation in the church, and now we're hearing them about LGBTQ plus discussions. Bishops, do you, do you have any thoughts on that? Uh, yes, I would say that um, I would say that there's a lot of truth in what's being stated here. And, and let me off, let me just observe another aspect of this. There's a there is a um, accidents often happen at intersections. So I served a local church where we faithfully built relationships and had about 90 persons who were Latino in some way, different countries, different points of origin, but but Hispanic Latino could be a fair designation that, that they would self-describe. And the day that that church said we're open to gay people, we were not a reconciling church, but we did say openly we're going to be welcoming to um, gay persons based on things that were happening in United Methodist Church. 90% of those people walked out. I am not trying to, to say that this is a Latino issue. I am saying this, if this is a hard issue for people of color and the intersection between welcoming and giving rights and entering into beloved community, nobody to my experience does that really well. And so, yes, are the same arguments used again? Absolutely. Um, are white are white straight people accustomed to using those arguments? Absolutely. I mean, again, go to these information sessions for disaffiliating churches, and and you just you can hear it and see it. And this is a place that if we're going to be anti-racist, we're going to have to also think about wow, what about the LGBTQ community? How does that enter into the work? And the complexity just went up. I'm not saying that any group is at fault. I gave an example of a certain intersectionality that a little car crash at that. And what I'm telling you is as a pastor that was trying to manage a lot of this, I failed to retain people. And it makes me sad because people that walked out were my friends. I also lost white people when I talked about real history about the African-American community. I also lost white people when we welcomed Latino people in and Indian people in like this is sanctifying work, which means that not everybody's going to stay with you for the whole journey. We just need to acknowledge that. So we, those of us who remain, who are committed to it and we're locking arms, we have to do it with grace and elegance. We've got to be elegant in how we do the work because this is a hard dance to do. And we've got to commit to each other. We're going to keep practicing until we get this dance just, you know, just a little bit right. So those are some observations. Uh Next question comes from Betsy Rizard from First uh, UMC Lakeland. She says there are several justice groups in the Florida Conference. Uh, what is what is in place for us to work together in training, conversation, and sharing resources? What's the best best place to work together? Yes. Um, so, the best place is in the place of intentionality. Um, my experience in a local church is once we committed to being intentional about anti-racism, suddenly when the conference offered us resources, we started saying, oh, good, there's a resource. Let's do it. Prior to that, when the conference or the district offered us resources, we said, well, that's just another thing. We don't really need that here. So the place of intentionality is the starting place. And that's the burden that that every individual and every congregation has to carry for itself. And by the way, there's no outside bishop, superintendent, or task force that could come into your church and get you to do anything or require you to do anything. So what I would say is get with your church leaders and your congregation and say, hey, can we make this a priority? And then you're going to notice if you go on the conference website. And by the way, you can call the annual conference and we will help you connect. You can call your district superintendent. That person will help you. You can call um, Jan Earls with Congregational Vitality because this is a function of Congregational Vitality. You can call Lee and John, his wife, who work on the RET task force. You can call our folks with religion and race. Can I just tell you something? I mean, Lee, you, you, let me ask you a question, Lee. If a, if a congregation would call you and say, hey, we'd like to begin this work, would that be a welcome call in your life? Or would that be a like, oh, I don't have time for this? That is a welcome call. That's part of my job. Part of my job. And let me and ask you something else. How often is that call coming? It does not come often enough. It, it they do come from time to time, but not often enough. We've got uh, over how many churches? 
we had hundreds of churches, uh, but I can I can probably count on the, nearly four hundred, nearly four hundred churches. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, yes. So there, there, there is, there are resources. We also have district anti-racism teams, uh, which is another resource for you to, 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 to contact. And and thank along. you. Reverend Dr. Sharon Austin has just appeared on my screen. And that is a name I have not named, but who leads our justice ministry. And Sharon, thank you for literally popping up on my screen so I can say, and another big resource is that Reverend Dr. Sharon Austin. So Lee, I, I take it back to you for brokering this conversation yeah no problem no problem yes yes sharon is the goat in our conference when it comes to uh justice ministries greatest of all time for those who didn't catch that <laughs> all right um let's see uh other questions that we have here uh shannon harris asks, is there training that is available for uh, laity and clergy uh, in terms of of uh, related to anti-racism. I would like to ask, um, Sharon, if you would take a moment, because I, I'd like you to answer that. I think it's going to be a better answer. And I'll well, tell you that about 10 minutes before I entered into the Zoom call, I was sitting in Sharon's office getting some answers answered, so <laughs> some questions answered. So Sharon, just take a few minutes because I'm a lot well, of Absolutely. Absolutely, Bishop. Thank you um, all so much. And as I listened, uh, Bishop, to your responses, uh, I joined the many who are greatly encouraged. I appreciate so many people joining the Zoom uh, in the middle of the day. And that is uh, a credit to uh, the outstanding work of uh, Reverend Erwin Lopez, who regularly hosts these conversations, and to Reverends Lee and Jonah Hall Perkins for their uh, just really phenomenal um practice graceful leadership of our anti-racism uh, task force of the conference. That being said, uh, I do want to uh, acknowledge, so I was smiling a little bit, I've mentioned to Lee and Jonna recently that the East Central District Building Bridges Anti-Racism Task Force is actually a group that would like to meet with them. Uh, and we hope to have an opportunity to schedule that because the work is massive and it is difficult. And it has a considerable and historic um, um, you know, sense of how it, it feels to people along with all of the prescriptive ways uh, and uh, opportunities for collaboration uh, that we have to, to work together. In at least some of our districts, I would like to thank all, and where there is an existing anti-racism team or task force, uh, it actually is comprised of, of lay and clergy. And so if you are in a district where that is not the case, then my strong suggestion would be to speak with uh, the district superintendent or the district lay leader or the chair of the anti-racism team and indicate your interest in uh, being a part of it. Um, one of the challenges that I think I just wanna address largely um, to, to the, the leaders on this call and to uh, our folks around the conference, especially whenever I receive the question, how can we have these conversations in our congregations? What do we say? We're afraid of making mistakes, saying the wrong thing, all of which is legitimate. Uh, probably the biggest fallacy is the assumption that we live in a post-racial world. We do not live in a post-racial world. We live in a significantly racially charged world and in a church where in some more specific and clear ways than the church has uh, engaged um, for the 200 years plus uh, of Methodism in the United States. We have also acknowledged our history. It has been tragic in a number of instances and when we claim our hope for the future, it is because we will do this work together. Uh, and so I, I know that I am not alone in, in saying this uh, next statement as a person who has served uh, all cross-racial, cross-cultural appointments in the Florida Conference, so local church and extension ministries. Um, I, I can recall the Sunday where as I greeted uh, parishioners leaving after a worship service, I saw a couple kind of hovering off 
uh, to the left of the narthex. And I thought, well, they probably want to speak to me. Maybe someone is having surgery in the morning, prayer, there's some crisis. And uh, she uh, came to me along with her husband. And and I, I just I always think about what is whispered versus what is said out loud. I think if you don't talk about racism so much, it will go away. Now, I thought, you know, um, nothing could be farther from the truth. And it is because we have succumbed to uh, theological and social politeness in our churches that we have not done a better job of bringing uh, these issues and conversations into the light. And by uh, being complicit and silent, we have basically relegated those who have been so harmed by racism to, to sort of lick their wounds and take care of themselves and, and keep your mouth shut. So we have a different opportunity now. And I think Bishop, everything that you've said today, the plan, the conversations uh, led by Lee and Jana and the incredible work of uh, media is really flipping the script of let's just be quiet and go along to get along. And instead naming it, and inviting allies uh, to be a part of the work because we will not do this without allies. Racism is not the problem of people of color. It is a problem for all of us. And in the church, it's a problem we all need to own and address together. Well, that's what I, how I really feel, you know, just when people ask. <laughs> Thank you for sharing, Dr. Olson. So eloquently put. Uh, yep. Yes, yes. Uh, Another question that we have uh, here, and we've got a, a few more, uh, is what is being done to make sure that clergy of color are receiving an equal or better pay as well as better appointments with resources? And I forget who that person was, but you know who you are. You know, three years ago, um, money was um, applied to um, a number of, of clergy to augment their salaries, um, that time is running out. And unfortunately, um, what wasn't done, so typically when you take money and you and you bolster someone's salary, you also create a plan for how the church will then sustain that. Because if you don't, they fall off a cliff because if the money's no longer there, the, there's a, a drop down because if the money's not being sent and the church isn't gonna do that work. This is why congregational health and vitality is so important. And friends, uh, there aren't easy solutions to that, um, but congregational vitality is, is struggling everywhere in every sector of our church. And so um, part of this is just clergy salaries general. We have to make sustainable and we have to pay people for their, their, um, the work that they do. Um, that said, um, we are currently working with the Anti-Racism Task Force and members of the cabinet to discuss those particular, that particular use of funds and to ask, you know, what are we going to do now? I don't have an answer for you today. I can tell you that meetings are being held at this time to consider those matters. Lee, you, you're a part of those meetings. So you're, you're very aware of that. And um, we all see it as a something that needs to be done. Um, can it be done on a broader scale? I don't know. We have to identify the need, but we also have to make sure that, again, friends, we cannot supplement us ourselves to equity. What we're going to have to do is gain enough congregational health that we create equity and call out churches that are underpaying clergy for the work that they do at the size that they are. So th those are complicated issues. Those are important issues, but they are issues that we have to address. And currently meetings are happening to address them. Yes, thank you, Bishop. And yes, as he said, we are, uh, that is something that we're actively working on. Uh, currently within the task force uh, uh, regarding clergy compensation. And you might have also be aware that we uh, made presentations at annual conferences, the last two annual conferences on um, on where we are in terms of the disparities with uh, clergy compensation. Uh, and just in the last year with the, with the grants that have been um, put forth by the cabinet and also some intentional cross-racial appointments been able to shrink the gap that we have a little bit, uh, but there's yet more work to do 
and uh, we're actively engaged with that. So um, thank you for that question. Uh, I believe it was Charity that asked the question. All right, uh, another question that we have here is, um, there was a recent incident in Lakeland uh, where uh, a noose was found on the property of uh, an African-American organization, an Elks Lodge. Uh, and the question is, uh, what will be the public witness of our uh, conference, especially as we have our conference center right there in Lakeland and have a number of churches there? What is our public witness to, to, to this incident in particular and the many other attacks on uh, diversity um, through book bans and other pieces of legislation that are attacking diversity within our state, and particularly African-Americans. Um, the story in Lakeland was posted, I believe, last night about 5 p.m., and the Lakeland Police Department are investigating that. And so what, what we will do today is to put in a call and just discover what have they found, what, you know, what what's happening and we can call the Elks Lodge um, this week our communicators out of the office who would typically take the lead in that effort um, and so we're, we're lacking that resource um, but that's to say that we're not going to produce a public statement until we actually know what the facts are because that's not good for anyone so my experience as a pastor is the first thing that you have to do is slow down and find out what's going on and then you can officially speak to official facts um, if it is determined that it is a noose, it is not hard for us to put out a statement. Um, and so I, I think it's just normal that an annual conference um, does reply to these. I will also say um, the annual conference has to figure out where its energy is. So you've listed a number of other issues in the state of Florida, book bans, book burnings, books, <laughs> books alone could be a full-time job um, in the state of Florida. Um, this is a complicated space and we're doing this work in the year of disaffiliation. So part of a bishop's role is to determine where will the energy, the limited supply of energy and resource from an annual conference be applied. It will not be applied everywhere. It must be applied somewhere. And so when I look at that general resource, one of the places that we're trying to apply it is dismantling racism and a plan that was accepted by the annual conference that we now must live out. What we will not do is pick up the paper every morning and figure out what to be angry about. Because in the state of Florida, quite frankly, in my life, there's a lot to be upset about. Yeah. And so we will have to figure that out as we go and we'll do that as a team. And we'll try to make the best decisions, understanding that the conference won't always speak out on everything. And that may be frustrating to people. And when the conference speaks out on things, that will be frustrating to people. Uh, I can live with the frustration, but I do want you to understand we have a finite set of resources that we're trying to apply in the best way possible. And with this one article that was just lifted up, once we have some facts, we'll make some decisions. Okay, thank you, Bishop, for sharing that. Um, and we have, let's see, one more question, and I probably will be the one that would answer it. Currently, how many districts have a functioning anti-racism uh, task force? How can we be accountable to one another? Uh, last time we checked, we had seven districts, seven of the eight districts uh, that had anti-racism um, task force teams, uh, and we probably overdue for a check-in so that we can all collaborate, come together, and share ideas, what's working well in our districts and whatnot. So uh, we can we can expect that to happen in the future. Um, and uh, last question, and this comes from me, Bishop. Uh, what do you say to the pastor or lay leader who is worried about having uh, conversations about race in their church? Um, first, um, well done for realizing that you should be concerned. That That's important. Second, as a pastor in a local church, if they said, Bishop, what should I do? I would say my experience is that any time I entered into territory that I knew was, could create division in the congregation, I first met with our leaders. And I did that relationally, one by one. I would go to lunch, go to breakfast, have coffee, meet them after church, do something. And I just say, hey, this is on my heart. This is something I think we've got to, water I've got to move into. Help me as a leader. How would you do it? And I'd put some of the burden on them so that I, I, didn't, I never saw myself as, as the prophet who was gonna tell everybody what was gonna happen. I saw myself as someone who was leading a team of leaders 
And so I would one by one bring the leaders in. That would include my church council and my staff parish relations committee. Because when you do this work, people are going to complain. So tell your leaders ahead of time that you're going to do the work so that when the complaint comes, they can say, you know, he's already told me about that. Or she has already told me about that. Um, once you do that work, then if you work with a team on a staff team, talk to them about it. So notice what we're doing. We're starting with our leadership circle. We're expanding. We're expanding. And eventually, when you do the work with the congregation, you're going to say not. God's called me to do X. You're going to say, you know, we've made a leadership decision at church, you know, at, at First United Methodist Church. We've made a decision that we want to include everybody and we want to love everybody. And we think that's what Jesus is asking us to do. Please notice how I'm rooting everything in my Christian faith and in the Bible. I would give scriptural verification for why we're going to do this hard work. And as a result, here's what you can expect in the coming weeks. By the way, on week one, I don't say we're doing this. On week one, I, can, I say, here's what you can expect in the coming weeks. And I give people a calendar of how we're going to do that. If it's a sermon series, I'm going to tell them ahead of time. If it's a workshop, I'm going to invite them ahead of time. And I would encourage, encourage. And then I would talk about how this has been life-changing in my life. And I would do some confession. Hey, everybody, as you know from this book, um, I realized the thing that white people never want to learn. I realized that my ancestors owned enslaved people. And they thought that was a good idea. And they thought that was fair and equitable. Um, I can take you to the places in Clark County, Virginia, and the city of Winchester where the property existed, where those persons lived, and where they lived with members of my extended family. That was a really hard thing for me. Some people in my family thought that was no big deal. Others said, I'm not going to feel guilty about that. I said, actually, it makes me really sad. And that's opened up a way that Jesus has entered my life, and it's been a new experience of learning how to love other people and love myself and to love God. That's what I'm committed to. So I'm giving you sort of a, a quick answer, Lee, to a very complicated thing, but I want you to notice, I don't believe in standing up, surprising people, ticking them off, and calling it leadership. I believe in building coalitions. I believe in getting people on board. And I believe that Christian discipleship and sanctification is the hardest work humans do because it's actually transformative. And if you say I was successful by the number of people who left your church, you're not a leader. You're just somebody who's good at raising stuff up and ticking people off. What I'm actually trying to do is to change lives so they become more Christ-like and they grow in the love and knowledge of God. And finally, this is a book by Dr. Paul Chilcote, who will be speaking at an annual conference this year. I've invited him to do that because of this book. It's called Multiplying Love. This will give you the theology that you need to do this work in a very readable form that clergy and lay people alike. And I am promoting this book a lot because I think it's really helpful and it roots us in our Wesleyan theology. And that's a part of our job. Our part of our job is to use our Wesleyan theology to do the good work we're doing in local churches. And finally, in answer to this question, nothing built community in our church more than the willingness of our leaders to lead our congregation through a process over time where they learn to love their neighbor. Nothing helped them say at the end of it, you know what, that wasn't much fun and that was tough and some of your sermons were tough, but I did it, I got through it. And you know what, it's changing how I act in my workplace. It's changing how I talk in my family. It's changing some norms in my extended family. And I just want to thank you. I had people walk up to me and say, I just want to thank you and this church for the change you brought. And friends, that's the point I'm trying to get to, is the point where somebody's life changes because they were in church together. So I think it's all possible, but it's a lot of work and it's not easy. Thank you, Bishop, for sharing. And I'm sorry, I got to apologize to you. I said that was going to be the last question, but there was one more question that came up just recently, and I think it's a really good question. So I do want to pose it, and this will be promised this time, my last question to you. The question comes, is, is there any word of encouragement or advice, particularly for those who are pastors of color in our conference that are leading and doing the work in fairly homogenous white churches? and continually receive either blatant racial feedback or microaggression. So what is what is your pastoral word to other pastors of color who are serving in cross-racial appointments and having a hard time racially? 
Yeah, somebody's got a lot of experience with white people. Um, never underestimate their capacity to not even understand what they're actually doing. And and I'm not I'm not saying that's right. I'm just saying your experience, I absolutely believe. Um, so <clears throat> I think that part of what you do is you build um, allyship within the congregation, not you against them, but you create norms. Um, we had a situation with a pastor, uh, African-American pastor, uh, Shenda Lee, who was in the Virginia conference, who received comments about the size of her earrings. <laughs> and so she wrote an article about my earrings and she said, this is what it looks like for me to be me. And, and I love my earrings. And well, what happened in that church at Fairlington is um, they just learned that it's okay for people to wear earrings of every size, you know, and she didn't do it with a bad attitude. She didn't Now I'm sure there were white people who felt that, but the norm in that congregation became, Hey, we're, we're going to do this work. We're going to learn to love each other. And we're not going to accept people making snide comments about our pastor's earrings. By the way, she also bought larger earrings. <laughs> not, I don't know if that was a good idea or not, but I am. I do know the situation. Why do I give you that example? Part of this is you have to find people on, in leadership and you've got to talk about the microaggressions and you've got to say, hey, how are we going to accept deal with norms? Because again, it's not just about that one exchange. It's about every exchange. Quite frankly, if you'll talk about the size of your pastor's earrings, God help us if a person of color who you've never met enters the congregation because they live down the street and they actually want to know, am I going to be accepted here? So one of the best questions I received from a, a two married gay women who entered the congregation that I served was this. We just want to know if we can be safe here. We want to know if our children go, they had two biological children, their own daughters, who they had had uh, in their marriage, because science is amazing. And they said, if our daughters go to, to Sunday school here, will they be told that we're evil and sinful? Because we don't want to have to declutter all that. Well, what that meant is we just had to deal with some norms. Now, the good news is we had done that work ahead of time, and I knew with 100% confidence that wasn't going to happen in our Sunday school with our teachers. But we actually had to talk about that. We had to talk about that. So part of what you're doing is in identifying this and saying, hey, this isn't great. And so how are we, what are our norms? Then you have to teach the norms Then you have to have the conversations and it takes real leadership to do all that work. So you've got to have leaders in your congregation that will lead with you. And if you don't, then you call in the superintendent because if you don't have any allies in the church, then we've got to call in our superintendent because in our denomination, we're going to do this work. In the Florida conference, we're going to do this work. And the good news is we have resources and we're equipped. And so we can help people and we don't have to shame them. We don't have to guilt them. We can just say there's a different way to live in the love of Christ where everybody feels blessed every day. Let's get there. Amen. Amen. That's a good word to end on. Thank you, Bishop. Erwin, I, I turn it back over to you. Thank you so much, Bishop, for your time. Thank you, Lee. Thank you, Dr. Austin. And thank you to everybody who's joined us in this webinar. We hope that this has been encouraging for you and that this has given you some practical tools for you to implement in your local church and also to hear about the, the bishop's vision and how we're implementing anti-racism as part of our core vision. Um, I do have some important announcements I want to share before we go. Here really? Yes, go ahead, Bishop. Let me just cover myself. First, I want to thank the, you and you know Lee, Erwin, thank you all for doing this. Second, I am certain I left people out when I talked about the resources that are available. I'm sure there are names I didn't mention. Please know that as a bishop, I don't carry everything right here. I wish I did. That's my finiteness, my limitations. So just know I love everybody's good work. And I just want to make sure I say that. And, and a conference website will help you access those. All right, I'm out. Thank you, Bishop. And yes, there are so many resources that the beloved community, Anti-Racist Task Force, G-Corps, and so many different organizations are working on. So please get engaged. Please if you seek, you shall find. Send the emails, ask the questions. There's so many resources we've been working on, and we really need you to continue staying engaged in this work, but also share it. Share it as much as possible. And so please continue to, to support us in this. I want to show you guys just some, something real quick before we leave, some things we've been working on with the Anti-Racist Task Force and also with the beloved community. I'm going to share my screen here real quick. Um. But I've been spending the last year studying trauma, trauma, 
And we're going to host a webinar on November 1st, another one at 12 p.m. on the topic clergy trauma. There's a lot of research that's showing of the trauma that clergy cause to their congregation. I've been focusing on the trauma that clergy receive from their congregation. Um, and we're going to have some licensed mental health counselors, some trauma specialists. And also this is in collaboration with the Center for Clergy Excellence with um, Sarah will be joining us as well, so stay tuned for that. And then another important announcement that I'm also excited about that I've been working on is a BIPOC clergy support group. So another thing I've been working on and studying is racial trauma and the way that, as the pastor shared in the chat, as clergy of color, we receive these microaggressions and we have to navigate through a space that is 90% white. And I've been studying the way that that causes trauma in our bodies. And so we're going to be offering an online BIPOC clergy support group led by Kathleen Joseph, who's a licensed mental health counselor and also specializes in the racial trauma. And this will be offered the second Thursdays of the month from 10 a.m. to 1130 a.m. And it's going to be starting in November for nine months. And it will culminate in a retreat that we will hopefully have at the we're planning to have at the Warren Willis camp so we can get together, support one another and also help bring some diversity to the Warren Willis camp. Um, and so please stay tuned for that. We're going to be sharing those announcements through email and through the Florida Conference social media sites. Um, and again, these table talks are recorded. They're on a podcast. They're on video. They soon will be on YouTube. And we are very encouraged by your presence here. Um, somebody mentioned that there's only 53 people. I'm excited there was 69 people, 70 people, 100 people registered. And more will listen if you share this with your congregations, you share this with your families. And so let's continue to expand this work and grow our audience. And we can only do this together. Um, and so thank you again, Bishop, and thank you to everybody who joined us today. And our, this concludes today's webinar.